All right, join me in Philippians chapter 3. every obvious uh, evidence to the contrary, I still am convinced sometimes that I'm God. And thus I pushed myself this week through sickness thinking, I'll just get better and haven't got better. Came to Saturday and realized I have not been able to put in the effort that I'd want into the passage that we're going to go into in Job and I didn't want to short suit it at all. And so I decided to shift gears a little bit and talk uh, about the gospel from Philippians 3 this morning. So um, let's pray, and then we'll we'll go to God's word. (coughs) Father in heaven, will you soften our hearts to your word? Will you bring conviction to us where conviction is needed, and will you bring comfort to us where comfort is needed? Will you lift us up? And tear us down. Will you open our hearts to know Christ, to gain Christ, to believe in Christ, and to lay aside our every effort and every confidence of the flesh? We do this by the power of your Holy Spirit and for your glory in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians 3. And I will be focusing on verses 8 through 11 um, this morning, but we'll read from verse 2 to verse 16. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think in this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold it true to what we have attained. Amen. Reading of God's Word. You may be seated. <coughs> been commiserating lately with a pastor friend of mine in the area about the, the dearth of the understanding of the gospel. I uh, saw a clip or a video of a, a man, I think in Thailand or some, somewhere, and his job was to roast tea uh, leaves. And on the ceiling in his, where he roasted them, and even on the rope of the light, was these white crystals. And he said, that's pure caffeine from the roasting process. It collects on the ceiling. He was actually able to sell that to pharmaceutical type people as pure grade caffeine. And I just think of this passage as one of those places where the gospel is distilled or where it's crystallized for us in a pure form. Um, and it's a, really such an abundant rich passage that I feel like we're just going to skip over the top of it. In one sense, um, it would be worth a whole in-depth sermon series, but it is a presentation of, of the purity of the gospel that we need to understand and believe, and that our community is in such desperate need of. Um, so let's begin by looking in verse <coughs> 7 and 8. Where Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So this idea of, of loss and gain, uh, and indeed he says he counts everything as loss. Everything as loss. Any claim, if we go back and we back up a little bit in the, in the chapter, we see Paul's own claim in the flesh to righteousness. That he could, could make claims to confidence in the flesh. That's what he's talking about here. Confidence in the flesh. He counts all of that, anything you could count as confidence in the flesh, lost. That might be family. You know, I'm a cruise and we have, we have historic, traditional, Christianity in my family, or for Paul, I'm a son of Abraham, right? Or any kind of religious prestige for Paul, which was great. Paul was was far and away above all of his his peers growing, he says in Galatians, beyond them all. He, he was studied under the best leaders. He had religious prestige. And he, he says it's not it's not just those claims that we might think of that are religious, but he says he counts Everything as loss in comparison to Christ. That might be wealth or status or, or comfort. Paul has certainly lost all of those things. So the question becomes, why do we have confidence in the flesh? Why do we as human beings put our confidence in ourselves and in these things? I think on the one hand, it's because we have we, we are seeking a, a sense of approval. Uh, 
really becomes a false sense of approval, either from God or from man. As we see in the Proverbs, the Proverbs talk about the wealthy, how they just, the people gather around the wealthy. They have prestige, and we even see that in Job. Job had a sense of prestige and status, and when all that was taken away, everyone disappeared. And we think based on our own religious and moral uprightness that we can even incur divine favor. This is confidence in the flesh. Also, as we've seen in Job, and there's a lot of parallels to Job, that's part of why I chose this passage, but it also produces in us a false sense of security. As though, as if Job's wealth and all that he had surrounding him was somehow permanent, and we saw that in an instant it could be taken away. So we have claims to confidence in the flesh. But Paul says he counts it as loss. Uh, uh, it's like a, a spreadsheet. It's in the loss column. And indeed, he counts it as loss, but he also actually in reality suffered these losses. Uh, Calvin has this image. He, he says... Essentially, no, no matter the value, no matter the appraisal, no matter the insurance that you put on a, a cargo that you're, you're carrying in a ship across the ocean, when the ship is about to go down, everything has to go. If it's gold, solid gold, the value becomes as trash, as rubbish. You throw it away, you throw it into the sea. You might, it could be gold, but you might as well be freighting feces. It, it is worthless. Confidence in the flesh is a hindrance. It's dead weight. We throw it all into the sea. And it, as Paul says toward the end here, if by any means necessary, you throw it all, you cut out your own eye, you cut off your own hand, that you may attain to that most precious thing, life in Christ. For Paul, he calls this knowing Christ. That's the highest possible value. Now, if it's lost, if it's trash, if it's rubbish, does that mean that that either we 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 will or we must suffer the loss of all things in order to gain Christ? In other words, must we take then vows of poverty? To gain Christ. And again here I, I found Calvin's thought process helpful. He said, Paul didn't stop being a son of Abraham. He stopped identifying himself as a son of Abraham as a means of pleasing God. You see the difference. So actually in Christ... Meaning is given to those things that we initially counted as gain for the flesh, that they gain meaning. Abraham, to be a son of Abraham, gains a whole new meaning in Christ. Obedience to the law is given meaning and purpose in Christ. Material possessions have value in Christ to glorify God. So in fact, there's freedom in losing one's life to find it. It may be that we would suffer the loss of all things like Paul did, like Job did. Remember when Paul was, was redeemed 
on the Damascus Road and Ananias comes to him and Jesus says to to him that he's going to to show Paul how much he will suffer for his name's sake. And of course, we've had to have Paul recounting in the Bible his shipwrecks, his stripes, his, his diminished status. And so I think freedom cuts both ways here, both in gain and in loss. Because Paul says, I have learned in whatever circumstance to be content. <coughs> we might ask then, what is it to be gained, to, to gain Christ, to be found in Christ? And just purely theologically here, the terminology we would use is, is union with Christ. That's what Paul's talking about here. And I'm more and more convinced that this idea of union with Christ is just so central to Reformed theology, but just to the gospel. In general, in fact, everybody should race to get the DVD that, that Mrs. Badgett left because that's what it's about. Union with Christ. This is what Paul's talking about here. A few scriptural images to explain union with Christ. An obvious one is John 15. Jesus talks about he is the vine and we are the branches that we're connected to Christ, that we find our life and our source of life in Christ. Another way the Bible talks about union with Christ, you see in, in the book of Acts, I believe, and that is we identify ourselves with the Christ, with the Messiah. Despite opposition, we become baptized into the Messiah. And we become identified with his, his cause and with his kingdom. We lift the banner of his kingdom. <coughs> Another way that, that the book, Paul in particular talks about union with Christ that I think is the most relevant here. We can actually trace through Romans 5 through 8. Um, and that is that we as human beings are sons of Adam. We're born fallen sons of Adam in the flesh. And when we become believers, we are united to, to a different head, a different representative, someone other than Adam that is called in, in Romans 5 the second Adam, which is Christ. And we're not just connected theoretically, but really, truly, like that image of the vine, such that we begin to, to share in and receive everything that Christ is and everything that Christ does and has done. If we go into Romans 6, we see that actually we have died with Christ and have been raised with Christ, and thus we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness. And so there's this image that the, the Bible uses of putting off, putting off the flesh, putting off Adam, putting off the old man, and putting on the new man, putting on Christ. And Paul points out that even, even though that's happening in us in Romans 7, there's this constant war between the flesh and the spirit, between the old man and the new man, our whole life through, but it's real because we're united to Christ. <clears throat> then, because Jesus came, and he kept the law perfectly. He fulfilled righteousness. And because we are in him, we're united to him. We share in everything that he is and he does. We are alive by his spirit and we are therefore alive because of righteousness. He says in Romans 8. We're brought to newness of life because of his righteousness. And we are also enabled to then walk by the spirit as his people. 
So that's what he's talking about, I believe, when he says we gain Christ or we're found in him is that we're united to him, mystically really united to him. I think this is what he has in mind in verse 9. <clears throat> and be found in him, he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So I hope we can begin to see a sense of what Paul calls here the surpassing value or worth of knowing Christ Jesus. That we can have a righteousness that is not our own. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that our community needs. The gospel of imputed righteousness. That by gaining Christ, we gain a righteousness that is not our own. That we do not produce ourselves. Um, Because one way to stand before God on Judgment Day is as righteous on our own two feet, having fulfilled the law and being perfect. I don't know about you, but that counts me out. There's another way, though, a really impossible way outside the, the beautiful providence of God, and that is this What's, what's called alien righteousness or imputed righteousness or what somebody called recently to me received righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. And it's not, not an infused righteousness as though God is somehow making us righteous because then that would still be our own righteousness. But it's imputed. It's just purely given to us. This is the righteousness that Christ won by his perfect obedience under the law. That, that righteousness of his is credited to our account so that we become declared as righteous in the sight of God. And you understand the reason we have that is, is because we are united to Christ by faith. That's why he says it is the righteousness that Depends on faith. We've been memorizing this passage at, at night with my kids and, and they were stumbling over righteousness from God. They kept saying of God and I, I made an point one night. From God. From God. I kept repeating it and then the next night they got it. They had it. It's righteousness from God. So again, it's no wonder that he calls this surpassing work. To stand on judgment day, we, we need to be not only forgiven for our sins, which we do because we have many of them. We need to not only be returned to sort of an Edenic innocence, but we need to have a positive righteousness as though we kept the whole law our whole lives through. And that's what we have from Jesus. We have his righteousness, a positive imputed righteousness. That's worth. That's value. Whatever you have to throw off the ship to get that. We see now why confidence in the flesh has to be trashed. It has to be thrown in the rubbish heap. We can't have it both ways. It's either our confidence in Adam, in our flesh, in our own law keeping, or it's our confidence in the second Adam and his righteousness given to us. We can't do both. 
That's why Jesus said, whoever would save his life must lose it. Lay aside the confidence in the flesh. Trash it, throw it overboard, and gain Christ. And there's surpassing worth in knowing Christ. There's no surprise then that he returns to this knowledge of Christ in verse 10. Where he says, that I may know him. There's really three direct objects here. The way that ESV puts it is a little little weird. Uh, But that I may know what or whom. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and share in his sufferings. Those three things. And becoming like him in his flesh is a description of how, or in his death, is how we share in his sufferings. It might be interesting, maybe, maybe, to read a book about the Saints of Trinity Reformed Church. Probably would be interesting. But it's much better to know you through interaction with you than to know about you. Right? Paul does not just know about Jesus. He does not just know facts about Jesus. He knows him. Indeed, he is in Christ as, as a sharer in all that he is and does. And he, he is so identified with him that when God looks at him, he sees Christ. To know Christ. That's what it is to know Christ. But what he says is, is a bit weird in verse 10, because we might expect him to say, even though I suffer and face death, I have hope in the resurrection. That's not what he says. It's all out of order. The power of the resurrection is first. I know Christ and I know the the power of his resurrection. Because the power of his resurrection is not just merely remembering what happened that day on the third day when he got up out of the tomb. And nor is it a mere future hope of our own resurrection But instead, by our union with him, it's actually something we've begun already to participate in, to share in. That we are already resurrected with Christ. In Colossians 3, Paul says, assuming based on what he says in chapter 2, if you have been raised with Christ, Assuming that's true. You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. We already share, we already participate in the resurrection, in the power of the resurrection. The the day that Jesus got up out of the grave on the third day was an inaugural day in which he began to usher in the new creation. And, And indeed, our own regeneration, our own new birth, our own spiritual rebirth is a foretaste of the ultimate conclusion of the resurrection. We've begun to share in that new creation as we've been regenerated, as we've been born again. And thus we're participating in the resurrection, the power of the resurrection of Christ. We're participating in His resurrection life. (laughs) 
oddly here, again, it's a bit odd, but he turns his, his mind to suffering as though that's a part of the value of knowing Christ. He says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This word shares, the word koinonia, fellowship, participation in his sufferings. And if you turn over to Romans a few pages back, Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 16 through 18. There Paul says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, becoming like him in his death. That's a strong way to put it, but that's a description of the suffering that he's talking about here. That is apparently a part of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Uh, if you flip just a little bit the other way, Colossians chapter 2, we see this connection again between uh, suffering and resurrection. <coughs> Colossians two eleven through 12, in Him, you hear that language again, in Him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism so there you're, you're sharing in his death in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So again we have this union language this idea that we share in everything that Christ is, including his suffering. And as Romans 8 says, that leads to glory. So suffering and death, it may be, like Paul, that we're talking here about persecution and martyrdom but to the extreme. Or it may simply for us be the little things of dying daily to self. Of laying aside the flesh, of living in the spirit of Christ. But it is apparently a great privilege to suffer in this way. Surpassing worth in union life, suffering. This is what Christ did. This is what we share with him in his life, his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection his ascension, and his glorification. You get the whole package, which includes this piece about suffering. Paul also says, 
in Second Corinthians four. seven through twelve. <coughs> he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to so show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. I believe ultimately the death that we're talking about here is the death of the flesh, is the death of confidence in the flesh. It's what what John Owen calls the mortification of sin, or to put that to death, and it hurts, and it, it requires suffering because we're hard-hearted. <coughs> now for Paul, all of this is leading to, to something, leading to fulfillment of what he's been talking about. Um, in verse 11, he says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Uh, what we're talking about here, G.K. Beale, in his book, Union with the Resurrected Christ, he calls this new creational resurrection life. This idea that through our regeneration, we've been born again into, into the life that Christ has purchased for us by his resurrection, that we share in the resurrection. That we have already begun to enjoy new creational resurrection life. And it's a life that has been initiated, inaugurated by the resurrection of Jesus. And it's ongoing and it's growing in us as we are conformed into the image of Christ through participation in his suffering and in his death. And even as we enjoy the first fruits of the the freedoms of the beginnings of resurrected and ascended life. And all of this is is driving toward really consummated or fulfilled glory in the resurrection of the dead. That's that's why he says, by any means necessary, or by any means possible. He's not saying, I'm so desperate, I'll just try anything to get this resurrection. He's saying, whatever it takes, whatever gold I have to throw off the ship, whatever treasures of the flesh... Whatever sufferings I have to do, endure, whatever in me has to die, even if it's myself, just throw it in the ocean and, and keep on sailing toward the fulfillment, toward the, the final completion of the resurrection of the dead on that last day. This is, this is what he says here, and we're not going to go through it in detail, but in the, in verses 12 through 16, that, that he's running Toward this, he's the image of a racer reaching for the finish line, that he's running toward the resurrection life, toward the consummation, and in light of consummation, he's straining ahead to to arrive there. In verses twelve through sixteen, 
Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But those of us who are mature think in this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So he's saying, let's strive for it and let's recognize that we have attained something. Namely, we live the resurrected life now, but there's something more to come, something to strive for, to live in light of. That's the consummated resurrection life in the new heavens and the new earth. (coughs) As I said, part of why I chose to look at this passage is there's a lot of relationship between this and Job's story. Job actually ends up becoming a powerful test case of this because he truly suffered the loss of all things. And yet for all that he lost, his his big concern in the book of Job is, is the great fear that he may have been forsaken by God. And that prospect horrified him even more than everything else he lost. Because, because for him, life, and for Paul, and hopefully for us, life in communion with God is of surpassing worth. As I, as I said, we've been memorizing this at, with the kids at night, and Zoe asked me one night, what's surpassing? Well, it's, it's more than, it's, it's far above. It's, uh, everything we have that's so great is here. Christ is there to the infinite in terms of worth. So may God grant us the grace to live more and more in the light of the the new creational resurrection life that is in Christ by faith. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Amen.